Part Four of Volume Three of Plutarch's Parallel Lives. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume Three of Plutarch's Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, translated by Bernadotte Perrin. Pericles, Part Four. Well then, whatever the original ground for enacting the decree, and it is no easy matter to determine this. The fact that it was not rescinded, all men alike lay to the charge of Pericles. Only some say that he persisted in his refusal in a lofty spirit and with a clear perception of the best interests of the city, regarding the injunction laid upon it as a test of its submissiveness, and its compliance as a confession of weakness, while others hold that it was rather a sort of arrogance and love of strife, as well as for the display of his power, that he scornfully defied the Lacedaemonians. But the worst charge of all, and yet the one which has the most vouchers, runs something like this. Phidias the sculptor was contractor for the great statue, as I have said, and being admitted to the friendship of Pericles, and acquiring the greatest influence with him, made some enemies through the jealousy which he excited. Others also made use of him to test the people and see what sort of a judge it would be in a case where Pericles was involved. These latter persuaded one Menon, an assistant of Phidias, to take a suppliant seat in the marketplace, and demand immunity from punishment in case he should bring information and accusation against Phidias. The people accepted the man's proposal, and formal prosecution of Phidias was made in the assembly. Embezzlement, indeed, was not proven, for the gold of the statue, from the very start, had been so wrought upon and cast about it by Phidias, at the wise suggestion of Pericles, that it could all be taken off and weighed, and this is what Pericles actually ordered the accusers of Phidias to do at this time. But the reputation of his works nevertheless brought a burden of jealous hatred upon Phidias, and especially the fact that when he wrought the battle of the Amazons on the shield of the goddess, he carved out a figure that suggested himself as a bald old man, lifting on high a stone with both hands, and also inserted a very fine likeness of Pericles fighting with an Amazon and the attitude of the hand, which holds out a spear in front of the face of Pericles, is cunningly contrived, as it were, with a desire to conceal the resemblance, which is, however, plain to be seen from either side. Phidias, accordingly, was led away to prison, and died there of sickness, but some say of poison which the enemies of Pericles provided, that they might bring calumny upon him. And to men on the informer, on motion of Glycon, the people gave immunity from taxation, and enjoined upon the generals to make provision for the man's safety. About this time also Asperia was put on trial for impiety, Hermippus the comic poet being her prosecutor, who alleged further against her that she received free-born women into a place of assignation for Pericles. And Diopethus brought in a bill providing for the public impeachment of such as did not believe in gods, or who taught doctrines regarding the heavens, directing suspicion against Pericles by means of Anaxagoras. The people accepted with delight these slanders, and so, while they were in this mood, a bill was passed, on motion of Dracontides, that Pericles should deposit his accounts of public monies with the Prytanes, and that the jurors should decide upon his case with ballads which had lain upon the altar of the goddess on the Acropolis. But Hagnon amended this clause of the bill with the motion that the case be tried before fifteen hundred jurors in the ordinary way, whether one wanted to call it a prosecution for embezzlement and bribery, or malversation. Well then, Aspasia he begged off, by shedding copious tears at the trial, as Ascanes says, and by entreating the jurors, 
and he feared for Anaxagoras so much that he sent him away from the city. And since in the case of Phidias he had come into collision with the people, he feared a jury in his own case, and so kindled into flame the threatening and smouldering war, hoping thereby to dissipate the charges made against him and allay the people's jealousy, inasmuch as when great undertakings were on foot, and great perils threatened, the city entrusted herself to him and to him alone, by reason of his worth and power. Such, then, are the reasons which are alleged for his not suffering the people to yield to the Lacedaemonians, but the truth about it is not clear. The Lacedaemonians, perceiving that if he were deposed they would find the Athenians more pliant in their hands, ordered them to drive out the Cylonian pollution, in which the family of Pericles on his mother's side was involved, as Thucydides states. But the attempt brought a result the opposite of what its makers designed, for in place of suspicion and slander, Pericles won even greater confidence and honor among the citizens than before, because they saw that their enemies hated and feared him above all other men. Therefore also, before Archidemus invaded Attica with the Peloponnesians, Pericles made public proclamation to the Athenians, that in case Archidamus, while ravaging everything else, should spare his estates, either out of regard for the friendly tie that existed between them, or with an eye to affording his enemies grounds for slander, he would make over to the city his lands and the homesteads thereon. Accordingly, the Lacedaemonians and their allies invaded Attica with a great host, under the leadership of Archidamus the king. And they advanced, ravaging the country as they went, as far as Arcarne, where they encamped, supposing that the Athenians would not tolerate it, but would fight with them out of angry pride. Pericles, however, looked upon it as a terrible thing to join battle with sixty thousand Peloponnesian and Boeotian hoplites, those who made the first invasion were as numerous as that, and staked the city itself upon the issue. So he tried to calm down those who were eager to fight, and who were in distress at what the enemy was doing, by saying that trees, though cut and lopped, grew quickly, but if men were destroyed it was not easy to get them again. And he would not call the people together into an assembly, fearing that he would be constrained against his better judgment, but like the helmsman of a ship, who, when a stormy wind swoops down upon it in the open sea, makes all fast, takes in sail, and exercises his skill, disregarding the tears and entreaties of the seasick and timorous passengers. So he shut up the city tight, put all parts of it under safe garrison, and exercised his own judgment, little heeding the brawlers and malcontents. And yet many of his friends beset him with entreaties, and many of his enemies with threats and denunciations and choruses sang songs of scurrilous mockery, railing at his generalship for its cowardice, and its abandonment of everything to the enemy. Cleon, too, was already harassing him, taking advantage of the wrath with which the citizens regarded him, to make his own way toward the leadership of the people, as these anapestic verses of Hermippus show. Thou king of the satyrs, why, pray, wilt thou not take the spear for thy weapon, and stop the dire talk, with the which, until now, thou conductest the war. While the soul of Atellus is in thee, if the tiniest knife is but laid on the stone, to give it an edge, thou gnashest thy teeth, as if bitten by fiery Cleon. However, Pericles was moved by no such things, but gently and silently underwent the ignominy and the hatred, and sending out an armament of a hundred ships against the Peloponnesus, did not himself sail with it, but remained behind, keeping the city under watch and ward and well in hand, until the Peloponnesians withdrew. Then, by way of soothing the multitude, who, in spite of their enemies' departure, were distressed over the war, 
he won their favor by distributions of money and proposed allotments of conquered lands. The Aginitans, for instance, he drove out entirely, and parceled out their island among the Athenians by lot. And some consolation was to be had from what their enemies suffered. For the expedition around the Peloponnesus ravaged much territory and sacked villages and small cities, while Pericles himself, by land, invaded the Megarid and raised it all. Wherein also it was evident that though their enemies did the Athenians much harm by land, they suffered much too at their hands by sea, and therefore would not have protracted the war to such a length, but would have speedily given up, just as Pericles prophesied in the beginning, had not a terrible visitation from heaven war thwarted human calculations. As it was in the first place a pestilential destruction fell upon them, and devoured clean the prime of their youth and power. It weakened them in body and in spirit, and made them altogether wild against Pericles, so that for all the world, as the mad will attack a physician or a father, so they, in the delirium of the plague, attempted to do him harm, persuaded thereto by his enemies. These urged that the plague was caused by the crowding of the rustic multitudes together into the city, where in the summer season many were huddled together in small dwellings and stifling barracks, and compelled to lead a stay-at-home and inactive life, instead of being in the pure and open air of heaven as they were wont. They said that Pericles was responsible for this, who, because of the war, had poured the rabble from the country into the walled city, and then gave that mass of men no employment whatever, but suffered them, thus penned up like cattle, to fill one another full of corruption, and provided them no change or respite. Desiring to heal these evils, and at the same time to inflict some annoyance upon the enemy, he manned a hundred and fifty ships of war, and after embarking many brave hoplites and horsemen, was on the point of putting out to sea, affording great hope to the citizens, and no less fear to the enemy in consequence of so great a force. But when the ships were already manned, and Pericles had gone on board his own trireme, it chanced that the sun was eclipsed and darkness came on, and all were thoroughly frightened, looking upon it as a great portent. Accordingly, seeing that his steersman was timorous and utterly perplexed, Pericles held up his cloak before the man's eyes, and thus covering them, asked him if he thought it anything dreadful, or pretentious of anything dreadful. No, said the steersman. How then, said Pericles, is yonder event different from this, except that it is something rather larger than my cloak which has caused the obscurity? At any rate, this tale is told in the schools of philosophy. Well, then, on sailing forth, Pericles seems to have accomplished nothing worthy of his preparations, but after laying siege to sacred Epidaurus, which awakened a hope that it might be captured, he had no such good fortune, because of the plague. Its fierce onset destroyed not only the Athenians themselves, but also those who, in any manner soever, had dealings with their forces. The Athenians being exasperated against him on this account, he tried to appease and encourage them. He did not, however, succeed in allaying their wrath, nor yet in changing their purposes, before they got their hostile ballots into their hands, became masters of his fate, stripped him of his command, and punished him with a fine. The amount of this was fifteen talents, according to those who give the lowest, and fifty, according to those who give the highest figures. The public prosecutor mentioned in the records of the case was Cleon, as Idomeneus says, but according to Theophrastus it was Simeus, and Heraclides Ponticus mentions Lacrides. So much, then, for his public troubles. They were likely soon to cease, now that the multitude had stung him, as it were, and left their passion with their sting. 
but his domestic affairs were in a sorry plight, since he had lost not a few of his intimate friends during the pestilence, and had for some time been rent and torn by a family feud. The eldest of his legitimate sons, Xanthippus, who was naturally prodigal, had married a young and extravagant wife, the daughter of Tisander, the son of Epilichus, was much displeased at his father's exactitude in making him but a meagre allowance, and that a little at a time. Accordingly, he sent to one of his father's friends and got money, pretending that Pericles bade him do it. When the friend afterwards demanded repayment of the loan, Pericles not only refused it, but brought suit against him to boot. So the young fellow, Xanthippus, incensed at this, fell to abusing his father, publishing abroad, to make men laugh, his conduct of affairs at home, and the discourses which he held with the sophists. For instance, a certain athlete had hit Epidemus the Pharsalian with a javelin, accidentally, and killed him, and Pericles, Xanthippus said, squandered an entire day discussing with Protagoras whether it was the javelin, or rather the one who hurled it, or the judges of the contests, that in the strictest sense ought to be held responsible for the disaster. Besides all this, the slanderous charge concerning his own wife, Stesimbrotus says, was sown abroad in public by Xanthippus himself, and also that the quarrel which the young man had with his father remained utterly incurable up to the time of his death, for Xanthippus fell sick and died during the plague. Pericles lost his sister also at that time, and of his relatives and friends the largest part, and those who were most serviceable to him in his administration of the city. He did not, however, give up, nor yet abandon his loftiness and grandeur of spirit because of his calamities. Nay, he was not even seen to weep, either at the funeral rites or at the grave of any of his connections, until, indeed, he lost the very last remaining one of his legitimate sons, Perilous. Even though he was bowed down at this stroke, he nevertheless tried to persevere in his habit and maintain his spiritual greatness. But as he laid a wreath upon the dead, he was vanquished by his anguish at the sight, so that he broke out into wailing and shed a multitude of tears, although he had never done any such thing in all his life before. The city made trial of its other generals and counsellors for the conduct of the war, but since no one appeared to have weight that was adequate or authority that was competent for such leadership, it yearned for Pericles, and summoned him back to the Bema and the war office. He was lying dejectedly at home because of his sorrow, but was persuaded by Alcibiades and his other friends to resume his public life. When the people had apologized for their thankless treatment of him, and he had undertaken again the conduct of the state, and been elected general, he asked for a suspension of the law concerning children born out of wedlock, a law which he himself had formerly introduced, in order that the name and lineage of his house might not altogether expire through lack of succession. Many years before this, when Pericles was at the height of his political career and had sons born in wedlock, as I have said, he proposed a law that only those should be reckoned Athenians whose parents on both sides were Athenians. And so when the king of Egypt sent a present to the people of forty thousand measures of grain, and this had to be divided up among the citizens, there was a great crop of prosecutions against citizens of illegal birth by the law of Pericles, who had up to that time escaped notice and had been overlooked and many of them also suffered at the hands of informers. As a result, a little less than five thousand were convicted and sold into slavery, and those who retained their citizenship and were adjudged to be Athenians were found, as a result of this scrutiny, to be fourteen thousand and forty in number. It was accordingly a grave matter, 
that the law which had been rigorously enforced against so many should now be suspended by the very man who had introduced it. And yet the calamities which Pericles was then suffering in his family life, regarded as a kind of penalty which he had paid for his arrogance and haughtiness of old, broke down the objections of the Athenians. They thought that what he suffered was by way of retribution, and that what he asked became a man to ask and men to grant, and so they suffered him to enroll his illegitimate son in the fretary lists, and to give him his own name. This was the son who afterwards conquered the Peloponnesians in a naval battle at the Argonusae Islands, and was put to death by the people along with his fellow generals. At this time, it would seem, the plague laid hold of Pericles, not with a violent attack, as in the case of others, nor acute, but one which, with a kind of sluggish distemper that prolonged itself through varying changes, used up his body slowly and undermined the loftiness of his spirit. Certain it is that Theophrastus, in his ethics, querying whether one's character follows the bent of one's fortunes and is forced by bodily sufferings to abandon its high excellence, records this fact, that Pericles, as he lay sick, showed one of his friends who was come to see him an amulet that the women had hung around his neck, as much as to say that he was very badly off to put up with such folly as that. Being now near his end, the best of the citizens and those of his friends who survived were sitting around him holding discourse of his excellence and power, how great they had been, and estimating all his achievements and the number of his trophies. There were nine of these which he had set up as the city's victorious general. This discourse they were holding with one another, supposing that he no longer understood them, but had lost consciousness. He had been attending to it all, however, and speaking out among them said he was amazed at their phrasing, and commemorating that in him which was due as much to fortune as to himself, and which had fallen to the lot of many generals besides, instead of mentioning his fairest and greatest title to their administration. For, said he, no living Athenian ever put on mourning because of me. So, then, the man is to be admired not only for his reasonableness and the gentleness which he maintained in the midst of many responsibilities and great enmities, but also for his loftiness of spirit, seeing that he regarded it as the noblest of all his titles to honour that he had never gratified his envy or his passion in the exercise of his vast power, nor treated any one of his foes as a foe incurable. And it seems to me that his otherwise puerile and pompous surname is rendered unobjectionable and becoming by this one circumstance, that it was so gracious in nature and a life so pure and undefiled in the exercise of sovereign power, which were called Olympian, inasmuch as we do firmly hold that the divine rulers and kings of the universe are capable only of good, and incapable of evil. In this we are not like the poets, who confuse us with their ignorant fancies, and are convicted of inconsistency by their own stories, since they declare that the place where they say the gods dwell is a secure abode and tranquil, without experience of winds and clouds, but gleaming through all the unbroken time with the soft radiance of purest light, implying that some such manner of existence is most becoming to the blessed immortal, and yet they represent the gods themselves as full of malice and hatred and wrath, and other passions which ill become even men of any sense." but this, perhaps, will be thought matter for discussion elsewhere. The progress of events wrought in the Athenians a swift appreciation of Pericles and a keen sense of his loss. For those who, while he lived, were oppressed by a sense of his power and felt that it kept them in obscurity, straightway on his removal made trial of other orators and popular leaders, only to be led to the confession that a character more moderate than his in its solemn dignity, and more august in its gentleness, had not been created." 
That objectionable power of his, which they had used to call monarchy and tyranny, seemed to them now to have been a saving bulwark of the Constitution. So greatly was the state afflicted by the corruption and manifold baseness which he had kept weak and groveling, thereby covering it out of sight and preventing it from becoming incurably powerful. End of Pericles